Well, are you, uh, are you ready for 2022? 12 months ago, everyone was bidding 2020 goodbye as perhaps one of the worst years ever, or at least in a long time, only to find many of the difficulties and the tensions of 2020 carried right along through 2021. And into, through a new year. For me, it's honestly, it's hard to remember, like, what happened in 2019 and 2020 and 2021. And then the fireworks went off uh, just a couple days ago. And here we are in 2022. And uh, as I think back, some of that is a blur. An unpleasant blur at times. Um, But think about it. Issues surrounding COVID that started and really bloomed in 2020 have just kind of continued and increased through the year of 2021 with uh, maybe fights on school boards and vaccine debates, new variants, perhaps lost loved ones, a political division that seemed to be at a fever pitch with the 2020 uh, election has steamrolled right through 2021. And the polarizing cultural issues of uh, abortion, critical theory, Gender, these are as polarizing as ever. And so you say, well, how about 2022? Should we be excited? (laughs) Should we be leery? Will it be better? Or worse? I think something that can be difficult for us and really that we've been tested in in these last months and years and something that maybe can be challenging or scary is the uncertainty of the future. The uncertainty of the future. Uh, Maybe you resonate with that this morning. Maybe there's difficult relationships under strain in your family life or uh, vulnerabilities in your health or with someone that you love. Or maybe your job has been a source of uncertainty over this last year, unlike previous seasons. Uh, Friends, uncertainty can be difficult. It can be uncomfortable. Uh, It can be stressful. And what I want to tell us this morning is that in an opposite, very grounding kind of way, Romans chapter 8 tells us that when it it comes to a believer's security in Christ, when it comes to a believer's stability and safety in the Lord, we stand in an absolutely, unshakably certain confidence of our future with Christ. That's a sweet, sweet chapter. You can hear that just even in the reading of this text. And our text this morning will be in verses 31 to 34, kind of zeroing in on what I will describe as four unassailable walls of this fortress of confidence, a four-walled castle, if you will, ensuring our hope, our future security in the Lord, four certainties of God's immeasurable grace, four certainties of unshakable hope, to put it in the language of Hebrews, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And really, Romans 8, the whole chapter, it booms with this kind of certainty and confidence in Christ There are, in those 39 verses, zero commands. This chapter tells you and me to do nothing. It just waxes about the greatness of God and of our salvation in God. From verse 1, no condemnation, to verse 35, no separation. This is all about the powerful work of God's grace and glory to save So this morning we look at really an argument that seals our legal case. Four walls of this this castle of unassailable hope 
and security. And the first is this, that God is for you. No one can come against you. God is for you and no one can come against you. Look at our text in verse 31. It says just that. Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Again, friends, God is for you. No one can come against you. Now, when you read verse 31, it's a question, right? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a teaching tool. That question is a teaching tool drawing us into Paul's logic, into the encouragement of his argument. And he says, look at verse 31. He says, what can we say to these things? In other words, we won't study it this morning, but when you read verse 28 to 30 and it talks about all things being worked together for good and the hope and the encouragement that it's all conforming us to a, 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 a Christ uh, a Christ-centered plan that he's working this sort of unstoppable chain of salvation glory from uh, eternity past into time and it's all climaxing in this, in this being conformed to Christ. He, he says, what can we add to these things? And before I move on, I just want to mention, we, we're not in verse 28 to 30, but a lot of folks, they know verse 28, right? All things work together for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes, right? There's this, this macro view of God's working. And yet verse 29 is so important, right? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's working all things to do. It's conforming. But friends, look at verse 29. It's that we would be conformed to the image of our son, not so that we would bask in our salvation, though that's true, but it's so that, what's your Bible say? So that he, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. A Christ glorifying salvation in which we're drawn up into. And here he comes, verse 31, he says, what can we add to that? What can we say to these things? What can we add, Paul's arguing? And he answers an unanswerable question with a question. <laughs> if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer... Is so obvious, it's not even in the text. No one. No one. I mean, think about it, friends. We're not just loved, but we're loved by God. We're not just saved, but we're saved by God. Protected by God. So that in the end, in the final analysis, no suffering, no persecution, no opposition against the believer is successful because we are passing through this life into an eternity of grace and glory. Imagine, as one pastor put it, if you had every resource, all information, every advantage, all technology at your dispense, and it was leveraged in your favor, what would that be like? You tell me. It's true. God is for you. And God is God. You say, how is he for us? He justifies us. He adopts us. By his grace, he indwells us. He intercedes for us. He elects, predestines, calls, verse 28 to 30. So that the bigger your God, the smaller your problems. Isn't that true? That theology has everything to do with walking with, uh, walking with God, trusting God. It has everything to do with stress in your life, anxiety in our life, disappointments, heartaches, even as he mentions, verse 18, the suffering of this present world. 
I was sitting this last week, kind of just remarinating in this text, thinking about some of you, thinking about things in my own life, thinking about some of your lives, and just some of the heartaches and the sorrows and the difficulties of, of life. And, uh, and we know that by our experience. And so what verse 31 is not saying, you know, you just think about the heaviness that you, maybe things going on um, in your own personal sphere. Verse 31 is not saying that hardships don't come against believers. It's not saying that indwelling sin is not a, a real battle and, and, and struggle in our life of following Christ. That's not what scripture teaches. That's not even what Romans 8 teaches, right? Romans 8, 12, and 13 says warfare, mortification against sin. We understand that there's this, that there's this aching, right? There's even a, the whole creation is aching for the, the, the birth of the glory of the children of God, it says in the Roman, Romans 8, 20s in there. So we understand it doesn't say that. But what it is saying is that for us, for believers, for those who are in Christ, all things, events, people, hardships, joys, sins, there is a sense, beloved, that they are used as servants for your ultimate good by a God who is carrying out an unstoppable purpose. So God is for you. No one can be against you. What a, what a certainty. But there's more. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Secondly, this morning, God is generous to you. Nothing surpasses or nothing is better than the gift of his son. So first, God is for you. No one can come against you. But second, verse 32, God is generous to you. Nothing is better than the gift of his son. That's what he, and it is, the, the gift is one that's given in this verse. Really, verse 32 is another question. And Paul is saying here, how can God not give you everything? How can he not give us everything? Point being, he, he does. He, he has. You say, wait a second, really? How, how is that so? In, in what way? Why do you say that, Paul, that we've been given all things? Well, verse 32 tells it. Just put your eyes on that verse. It's the cross, friends. Where he gave the gift of infinite worth. Where he gave everything. He gave us his son. His own son. Meaning his, his precious one of a kind son. Uh, notice the verbs in verse 32. It says that Jesus was not spared. Sparing means to pull back or to, um, to refrain. God didn't pull back on his justice. When he poured out uh, the, uh, the penalty for sin. He didn't shelter the son from the pain and agony of the cross. The father was not stingy with his, with his justice. It says in verse 32 that Jesus was delivered over. That's a, that's a, um, that's a punishment word. That's a judgment word. Uh, Matthew 10, 19 speaks of believers being handed over or delivered over when they were delivered over to be accused for Christ's sake. Or Matthew 26, 2 describes Jesus' death as the son of man being handed over or delivered over to crucifixion. So this is a judgment word. It deals with punishment. It deals with penalty. I want to show you this uh, out of familiar words, but it's maybe refreshing to look at them in, with your own eyes. Keep a finger in Romans and go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, familiar words, prophetically speaking of the ministry, the, uh, the substitution of the Lord Jesus by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before the virgin birth. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, we read how he would come. And you see this substitution theme and how he was given for us. You see this 
starting in uh, 53 and follow along with me in verse 3. It says, he, this is Jesus speaking, predicting in the future, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-beings fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. Again, he was delivered over, right? He wasn't spared. Verse, verse 10 makes it clear. It says, the Lord was pleased to crush him. He became a sin offering, friends, for us. You say, who delivered Jesus over to die? It wasn't Judas for money. It wasn't Pilate for politics. It wasn't the Jews for even the, the charge of blasphemy. Ultimately, it was the Father. It pleased him to crush him. And to illustrate the gravity and the beauty of this, let me paraphrase and build on the words of the Puritan John Flavel. It is as if, kind of describing our salvation, he writes, it's as if the Father says, oh, my son, Look at these poor, miserable souls who have utterly undone themselves in sin, who now lie open to my just wrath. My justice demands payment. It demands their eternal ruin. And yet my affection and my love is set upon them. It will be costly to restore and save these dear ones. And Jesus says, oh, my father... As you are, I too am moved with compassion for them. Such is my love and pity for them. Rather than that they perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills against them, that they may see what you owe. Bring them all in to pay every debt, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand require it, Father. I will live and die for them. I will be their payment. Count to me all their debt." And he says, my son, my beloved son, the cost is heavy. If I undertake, if you undertake their cause, you must pay to the last might. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And it is as if Jesus says, do it, Father. It's my joy to purchase their sin." to pay their crimes, to accomplish your salvation. It's my joy to bring your chosen ones on whom you have both love and pity to bring them to you, Father. Let me do it, Father, for your glory, for their good. Send me. I will obey you. I will fulfill it. And he says, oh, my son, I will conform every last one of them to you, to your beauty, to your glory. I will move heaven and earth, every gladness, every sadness, to shape them and change them and make them like you, to sing your praises, and they will be with us in the happy courts of heaven, redeemed forever. That's what salvation is like, friends. Infinitely rich and sweet for us, infinitely costly for the Lord. He was not spared, but delivered over. Delivered over into wrath, into judgment, into the curse of death and sin. So that every time that we say, I'm blessed, that refrain ought to ring in the back of our minds. Because 
he was cursed. Beloved, eternal life is offered to you and me because eternal death was born by the Son. Forgiveness and mercy is offered to you because justice was satisfied by the Son. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for you and me because condemnation was born as the Father, He condemned, He damned His Son in our place, bearing the judgment for sin. Romans 8.35, there is no separation for us because the Father turned His face away from His Son. He said, why did He do this? The text says, Romans 8, for us all. For us all. For the benefit of us. And he says in this verse, he says, how will he not also with Christ freely give us all things? You see what's happening in Romans 8.32. Go back there if you're um, in Isaiah. Paul is moving from a, from a greater to a lesser argument. That's what's happening. He's basically saying, of course he'll give us all things. He already has in Christ. He's freely given what's most precious, what's most costly, his own son. And so really what's happening is in this lesser, greater argument, the lesser is all things. Do you see that? <laughs> if the lesser is all things, if the lesser is everything, how much greater must the greater be? And yet I wonder, friends, do you, do we believe Jesus? Do we, do we, do we view the preciousness of Christ this way? I remember thinking about this, this truth just wrestling with uh, an unanswered um, prayer request uh, and, and on a drive just thinking about what God has given me in giving me Christ regardless of any and everything else. And actually we didn't plan this but um, the, the song that really ministered to me about this, this mercy of Jesus Jesus, your mercy is all my hope. It's all my joy. It's all my boast. Uh, uh, that, that song we'll sing this morning um, as, we, as we close. Uh, but I was just driving and thinking, God has held back nothing from me. I'm just trying to counsel my own soul. Soul, nothing has been held back. God has not been stingy with his grace to me and giving me Christ. That doesn't mean that I have or you have or we have everything we want. But it, that, it puts things into perspective in a powerful way. You say, God, I, 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 want, I, I so desperately want a spouse or, or a child. Or I want this experience or deliverance from this difficulty or a certain blessing. And friends, what I want to tell you and remind you of this morning is that even in withholding that thing but giving you Christ... God has held back nothing from you. He has given so generously to us. It's so sweet. And again, I'm challenging my, my, I've been challenging my own heart. I just This question, as I was talking about it with a friend from a few weeks ago, and it's, just been, it's been haunting me, it's been shaping me, it's been helping me, and it's this question of, can I genuinely function this way where my faith, I believe this, I believe what God has said in his word. Because what, what I was being challenged to, to believe and to walk in was this kind of freeing disposition where we, walk, we wake up each morning and we can say, God, I have, I have no needs. There are no needs that people have or that I, that I have from people that are not met in Christ. And can you, believer, can you genuinely say that? That you can wake up and say, I don't need, I don't need my husband to love me. 
I don't need that. I don't need my wife to love me. That's a wonderful thing. I don't need this thing from my job. I don't need this uh, in this certain relationship. I've been thinking about this even in my, I don't need a ministry. It's like, Tom, can you, can you say that? Do you believe it? That I have no needs. That I don't need people to, to look to me or listen to me. I don't need people to ask what I think or listen to what I say. I, don't, I have no needs. Now, that's true. And the showdown is, do I believe God's word? Do I believe verse 32? That in giving Christ, I've been given all things. What a sweetness this is. Certainty number one, God is for us. Nothing can come against us. Certainty number two, God is generous. Nothing is better than the gift He's given us in his son. Certainty number three, this is great. God justifies you. No one can justly accuse you. God justifies you. No one can justly accuse you. Look at verse 33. I love this. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Again, God justifies you. No one can justly accuse you. This is verse 33, courtroom language. So we're brought into the imagery of a courtroom. Uh, really that verb to charge, it, it means to lodge an accusation. So in verse 33, we're sitting on the seat of the accused with evidence, with prosecuting charges being brought against our case. And I'm, and I'm suggesting that this is teaching that no one can justly accuse you. Now when I say that, I don't mean that there are not accusations brought against Christians. Jesus himself said, uh, you know, blessed are you when people utter all kinds of things falsely against you on my account and you're persecuted, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, it's a promise, what does it say? Will be persecuted. So we understand that that's, that, that, that's not, it's not that there's not accusations, friends, it's that the accusations, they don't stick. It's like a snowball that's, you know, splats against the wall and it just runs down. It doesn't stick. Accusations against the believer, they can't stick. They fail. Listen to this. They fail every single time. You say, why is that? How does that work? Well, there's, just, there's several thoughts that kind of tie this together in this verse. Uh, why, do, why does every accusation fail? They fail because, first, believers are elect. Look at what verse 33 says. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? This means who will leverage a successful attack against God's bride, his flock, the love that he has for his people. So, and, and when we talk about election, it's this purposeful setting of his, of his love. It's to be, uh, to be foreknown or, or foreloved freely apart from any foreseen you know, merit or worthiness. It's unconditional love. And really, this passage uses a key word five times. It's not a particularly interesting word, but it's the word us. Us. This, this paragraph uses that word us. And the us in this paragraph is a carry-through of the word these and those. And we don't have time to talk about that this morning, but Romans 8, 28 to 30 Beefy theology of God's sovereignty talks about election, talks about uh, a number of different things conforming us to the image of Christ. The key word in that passage is the word these or those. Uh, for all of those, uh, excuse me, verse 28, for God, uh, all things work together. God causes all things to work together. All things work together for those. Those who are loved by God, 
Those called according to his purposes. For those he foreknew, he predestined. And then what does Paul do? He brings himself into the picture. And he says, how can he not do all of these things for us? It's the same group. It's believers. And so speaking um, from the human side, to be in the us is to turn and to trust in Christ. Speaking from the divine side, to be in the us is to be God's elect. And I like what one pastor, uh, Smedley Yates, said. He said, you do not tell a mom that her kids are ugly. You do not burn a flag in front of a Navy SEAL. And you don't dare bring a charge against God's loved ones. We're chosen. We're loved. But secondly, why does every accusation fail? Because a believer's legal status, friends, is perfect. The believer's legal status is perfect. This is the great reality behind justification. I just want to encourage you, if, if that word doesn't spark like, a, like, a, like an encouragement, a promise, a thought in your mind, the word justification, can I just encourage you? That's something to, that's something to, uh, to, to study out and maybe to give some time and attention to. There's a well of hope in what is called the believer's justification. That's a favorite word of Paul, and he talks about it a lot in Romans and Galatians. Justification is an instantaneous legal declaration whereby our sins are credited to Christ, Christ's righteousness is credited to us, and the gavel comes down and God declares us to be not innocent, not, not guilty, but righteous in his sight. Again, it's a, it's a double crediting, it's a double imputation, an instantaneous legal pronouncement whereby our sins are credited to Jesus, Jesus' righteousness is credited to us, and the gavel of heaven's courtroom comes down and declares us perfect, righteous in his sight. Before a man or woman ever grows in character or maturity in Christ-likeness, they stand justified with a perfect status in Christ. This is as equally true for the man who has been maturing in godliness for decades as the person who was born again in first service. Equally justified before the Lord. Equally perfect in standing on the basis of Jesus' life and death. This is why, friends, religion, it absolutely destroys the gospel. Religion destroys the gospel. God does not grade on a curve, see? We're either perfect in his eyes by faith alone. We stand on the basis of our own performance. And what the scripture says is that man can never be saved. Man can never enter God's holy presence on the basis of his own righteousness, on the basis of his own performance, on the basis of his own compassion or her compassion or good works. It's not from us but him. That's where the righteousness is sourced. And this is why, friends, everyone from a temple-worthy Mormon to an altruistic philanthropist to a drunkard stand condemned before God. Why? Because the righteousness that God requires, it's by faith alone. And yet grace upon grace upon grace, what does he do? He saves wretches, sinners like, like me, like us. We've fallen short. We have no hope, no chance. And he saves us. He justifies us. He declares us perfect in his sight on the work of Christ. Justification, beloved, it's the last word in the courtroom proceedings. When those who were, Romans 8, 28 to 30, formerly foreknown and predestined, when those who in time believed, when that happens, game over. 
That is the, that, that is the end, of, end of story. The courtroom uh, dealings are closed and every sin is dealt with past, present, and future. All your sins nailed to the cross and they're removed as far as the east is from the west so that you, though your sins as scarlet, will be white as snow. Believer in Christ, your day in court was the day that you looked with humble faith and repentance upon the Savior, trusting in Him, turning from yourself, and you will never be summoned to the courtroom again. I was just thinking about that again afresh. No charges for me in the final judgment. I just think about that, how sinful I am. You th- think about that in your life. Even the things that you battle in the flesh as, as a man or a woman, perhaps growing in Christ, maturing in the Lord. There will be even in the, the, all the layers of motivations and self-righteousness and sort of subtle inner life sins. It's all dealt with. I just I think about that in my life that I, when I come to the final judgment, every last bill will be paid. And that status, that perfect status is declared by God himself. I mean, just think about that. Um, you know, justification is a declaration that can't be undone by a judge who cannot be opposed regarding a sin record that's primarily against him so that when that gavel comes down and declares us righteous, no accusations stick. No accusations stand. It says in verse 30, 33, God is the one who justifies Well, that brings us to a fourth point this morning as we wind down, and that is uh, really a fourth security, a fourth certainty. So number one, God is for you. No one can come against you. Number two, God is generous. Nothing surpasses. Nothing is better than the gift of his son. Number three, God justifies you. No one can justly accuse you. And number four, Christ intercedes for you. No one can condemn you. Christ intercedes for you. No one can condemn you. Look at this, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? This is parallel to verse 33, another kind of courtroom uh, proceeding here. Again, but the answer is obvious, right? No one can condemn, right? No accusations are even brought to court. (laughs) No one's condemning. It's impossible to receive a condemned verdict. Romans 8.1 uses the same uh, word. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This word condemned, it has sort of two nuances to it. It has the idea of... Uh, pronouncing a guilty verdict and punishing with a criminal sentence. To pronounce a guilty verdict and to punish a criminal sentence. And basically the idea here, guys, is who can count you guilty, Christian? Who who can punish or issue your sentence? There is no sentence. (laughs) Right? You say, why is that? Well, verse 34, it says four things. And they are because of Jesus' substitution, resurrection, exaltation, and intercession. So let me just make a few brief comments on these words. Doug Moo is helpful in his commentary, and he, he kind of explains how what the text is doing is it's taking four theology things, four theology terms, and kind of putting a highlighter on the fourth one, which is intercession, okay? Doug Moo writes, The listing of these actions in ascending order, uh, with emphasis on the fourth, So as to say that he died to secure our justification, that's verse 33, 
But more than that, he's been raised and ascended so that at the right hand of God he may intercede for us, ensuring that the justifying verdict for which he died will be forever applied. So let me just run through these four uh, categories of theology that are in verse 34. The first is substitution. Substitution. And you can see that, right? Verse 34 says, uh, Christ Jesus, he died, but he died for us. Right? He died in our place. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, He bore our sins in His body on the tree. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It is that He came and gave Himself a ransom for many. This is the substituting work of Jesus. Substitution, second, what's your, what's your Bible say? We have resurrection. Right? Not only was he, did he die, but he lived, right? Resurrection, he walked out of that tomb providing, essentially, friends, proof and payment. Proof and power. This kind of vindicating idea. The resurrection proclaims that we serve a living God. The resurrection proclaims that payment was received, that judgment had been satisfied. So you have resurrection. Third, you have exaltation, right? It says in verse 34 that he's at the right hand of God. This is this sort of... Uh, this kingly seating, this, this ascending of Jesus. It fulfills Psalm 110 that says of the, of the Father to the servant, the Lord Jesus, that uh, he will sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This heavenly uh, seating. You remember the Old Testament priests, they continued to offer sacrifice day by day by day. Jesus offers one sacrifice and what? He sat down. He sat down and he's seated at the right hand of God on high. But fourth, and sort of where the highlighter is, is intercession. So you have substitution, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. And Paul really wants to highlight intercession, which is this idea that Jesus, he pleads the blood of his own sacrifice to continually apply to our account. He intercedes. That means he intervenes for us. Uh, look at this, uh, as we wind down, I want to show you this encouraging reality of intercession from two passages. One is in 1 John and the other is in Hebrews. And so just look at this as we close. 1 John chapter 2 describes the intercessory function of the Lord Jesus. And it calls him an advocate, a strengthener, one who is for us. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that so, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. An advocate with the Father. It's not like there's the bad Father and there's the nice Jesus. And Father's mad and Jesus is pleading, please don't be mad at them, Father. No, this is, this is Jesus pleading our cause against the accuser who brings his accusations. Revelation 12 says, before the brethren, day and night. And so we have an advocate, a comforter. A strengthener who is the Lord Jesus. And it says it, that, that he is Jesus Christ the righteous. Go backwards from First uh, John to Hebrews 7. Which indicates that this intercessory ministry is unceasing. In other words, you want to know what Jesus is doing? I can tell you. He is praying for you, for me, at the right hand of the Father forever. It is, it's this ongoing um, priestly ministry at the right hand of God. And it says in Hebrews 7, look at verse 23. He's, he's contrasting the former priests. He says, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater number because they were pre prevented by death from continuing. In other words, there's a lot of them because they kept dying, right? But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, resurrection, he holds his priesthood permanently. 
Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I like what one guy said. Most Christians affirm that Christ died for us. Fewer recognize that he lived for us. But fewer still, sadly, rejoice that he ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of God in heaven. So we have Jesus in this text praying us home to glory. Well, Romans 8 is a, is a great chapter. And we've seen four certainties that ought to produce uh, a settled confidence, freedom. Um, certainties, really, friends, that are untouchable by anything that will come at you in this new season of life, this new year, regardless of the heartache or difficulty uh, that it may bring. And so that's good news for us uh, to think about uh, a sweetness and a certainty so comprehensive, so good, uh, that really no one can come against us. God is for us. Second, God is gracious. He's given us already the gift of his son. Third, God justifies you. No one can justly accuse you. And fourth, Christ intercedes for us. No one can condemn. Walls of a castle. Uh, divine walls of unbreakable, unassailable certainty. And so the only question really that remains this morning is, are you in this castle? Are you in Christ? Are you in the us? You say, how do you know? Have you trusted in Christ personally, savingly? Have you turned from your sin to trust only in Jesus? Turn from all of yourself, all of your sin, all of your self-righteousness, all of your works, and cling only to Christ. That's what we've been rejoicing in and singing about this morning. That's what we proclaim when we come to the Lord's table is the forgiveness of sin that's in Christ alone. But I ask you, I ask you young people in particular, have you trusted Christ? When did you give your life to him? Have you trusted him savingly, personally, betting your life, your eternity, on his value and merit? I just encourage you, trust the righteousness of the son. Trust the son who was not spared but given over for us all. 